Hello and welcome back to the Steph Sanzaro podcast. My name is Steph. It is such a pleasure to have you here with me again for another amazing week. This podcast is a space for open and honest conversation. It's a space to talk about things in the world that really matter, things that need awareness drawn to them. They are conversations that need to be heard and conversations that need to be shared. Now, today's episode is built around polycystic ovarian syndrome. I have a guest returning this week from a very, very, very popular episode, I might say, probably one of the most listened to date. So I'm really excited to have her here today to help clarify some of the confusion around being diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome and perhaps give you some direction as to where to go next. It can be a very, very confusing diagnosis and I personally know myself how hard that can be and how alone you can feel. So without further ado, I would love to welcome back to the Steph Sanzaro podcast, Ellie McLean. Ellie, thank you so much for joining me here on the podcast today. I'm very excited to have a conversation with you about PCOS and we've talked on the podcast before, so I just want to say welcome back. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great platform and you're always a pleasure to talk to, or you have always been a pleasure to talk to. So I'm looking forward to today. Thank you. Me too. Now, I myself have been diagnosed with PCOS before and you yourself in your business, you deal with a lot of ladies who come to you about PCOS. And I know that that's been coming up a lot lately, but what's been happening? Yeah. So I, um, I'm really inspired to have this conversation because over the last 12 months in, in particular, I've had what I would consider to be quite a number of ladies, women, girls coming to me with the diagnosis of PCOS. So this question mark over whether or not they have PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, and what I'm finding is when I delve into the test results that they've had done or when we do additional testing is that it doesn't really look like a case of PCOS, but because of the criteria of PCOS that's most traditionally used, which I'll get into in a second, these these women are falling in or they fit the bill of PCOS, which essentially means they're being diagnosed with a condition which it doesn't appear they actually have. um, And that really impacts the treatment protocol that we go about, especially from a nutritional standpoint. The challenging thing is, is that when I've got somebody in clinic who's been told they're by their physician that they've got PCOS and then I tell them that I'm not quite sure if they've got PCOS, that obviously would be really confusing for the individual who who then isn't sure as to whether they listen to their doctor who's got probably tens of years of experience and knowledge or whether they listen to their nutritionist. And I hate the thought of individuals being torn between which practitioner to listen to. So I think if we have this conversation around perhaps where are the pitfalls with the traditional diagnosis of PCOS and what are the questions that women can ask their physician so that they can then be on the same page with their physician about their diagnosis, then there'll be less of this sort of he said, she said thing going on with the physician and the nutritionist. Yeah. Awesome. I love that. And I think that's going to be a really important message for us to get out here today and just clear up some of that confusion. And let's start like right at the top and let's talk about like what PCOS is. Yeah, absolutely. So PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome, some call it PCOD, so polycystic ovarian disease. Um, It is 
It is a condition associated with individuals meeting two of three criteria. And this is the traditional criteria for diagnosing PCOS. It's the, the Rotterdam criteria, which essentially says that for somebody to be diagnosed, they've got to have two of three criteria. So one of those is elevated testosterone, which could be driven by a number of factors. The other one is long or irregular, irregular menstrual cycles. And then the third one is um, polycystic ovaries, which needs to be diagnosed by ultrasound. So there's two of those three criteria that have to be met in order for PCOS to be diagnosed. Like I said, that's the Rotterdam criteria. And if we go by that Rotterdam criteria, around about 15% of women would be affected with PCOS. Um, but then there's another organisation and they are called the Androgen Excess and PCOS Society. And they have a different criteria for PCOS. So they essentially say that PCOS is a condition of elevated testosterone and irregular menstrual cycles when all other possible causes of excess testosterone have been ruled out. Um, and that, for example, is for somebody that's just come off the OCP or the oral contraceptive pill or for somebody with um, a condition which is called congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Can't say that one very quickly. <laughs> but the two diagnoses are actually quite different because what can happen is in that initial camp of that Rotterdam criteria, you can very easily have women with irregular menstrual cycles and polycystic ovaries who are being told they have PCOS, but in actual fact don't have PCOS because often there's no sign of androgen excess or testosterone dominance. Um, and this is what I've been seeing in clinic. And it often is due to another condition, which is called hypothalamic amenorrhea, which maybe we can talk, have a little talk about later. Um, mm. But this is really key like to, di to differentiate between the two because the treatment for PCOS and the treatment for that HA or hypothalamic amenorrhea is very, very different. Mm. So yeah. PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, it does affect a significant number of women. Um, so therefore getting the diagnosis right so we can get the treatment right is really, really important. Mm, it is, yeah. but it's confusing. Your doctor's telling you one thing. How can we sort of navigate them in the office? Yeah, and it is confusing. Like, um, confusing for the average individual. It's also confusing for health professionals. That's why this conversation is a really important one. Um, there are different drivers for PCOS. So um, I tend to, or in general, we categorise PCS, PCOS. Um, there's four different types. So asking the right questions knowing these four different types can help like can help you in working with your in working with your doctor so if we're going through like this little hierarchy number one to consider is the insulin resistant pcos um, which i know you're familiar with and aware of um, and this 
would contribute to around about 70 percent of cases of PCOS. Yeah. So you start here when you're going through your checklist of questions to to ask your doctor. Now, insulin resistant P PCOS is a situation whereby you've got these increasing insulin levels, which is driving increased testosterone production, which is what results in that testosterone dominance, which you remember is that number one criteria in both the Rotterdam criteria and the androgen excess and PCOS society criteria. So um, insulin resistance, the, the questions you want to ask your doctor is um, around about testing. So you want to have blood testing done and you want to ask for your fasting insulin levels. All too often, um, there will be testing done, but what might be looked at, might be looked at is fasting blood glucose or glycated haemoglobin, both of which are not giving us good enough information on whether insulin resistance is presence, present. Because what you can have is normal fasting blood glucose and a normal glycated haemoglobin. And glycated haemoglobin, haemoglobin gives us a view of like a three-month trend of somebody's fasting blood glucose. So those things can actually be normal in the presence of insulin resistance because what's happening is the body is upregulating production of insulin to help keep blood sugars normal. So unless you test fasting insulin, you won't actually know whether those fasting blood glucose levels or that glycated haemoglobin is being kept where it is normally or whether there's an upregulation of insulin production. So you have to ask for fasting insulin levels, which isn't always a go-to. Um, for physicians to ask for. Um, and we're looking for fasting insulin over around about seven units, which is very different to what you might be seeing on the reference range given by the lab, the lab report. Yeah. Mm. So that's the insulin resistant PCOS. And if there is elevated insulin and or elevated fasting blood glucose levels or HbA1c, um, then you'd be pretty confident in saying that the individual with the elevated testosterone, the irregular menstrual cycles and or follicles on the ovaries has a classic insulin resistant um, style PCOS. The second category of PCOS that we look to, so let's say you haven't got that elevated insulin or irregularities in your fasting blood glucose, the next thing that we look at is the post-pill PCOS. Mm. And this is temporary. Um, so for anybody who's, who thinks they fit into this category, um, really this should be temporary. So the question you have to ask yourself or conversation to have with your doctor is, whether or not your period was normal before you went on the oral contraceptive pill. Right. If your period was normal before you went on the pill um, and after stopping the pill, your period has become irregular or you've got signs of testosterone excess, whether it be, you know, excess um, hair growth or male pattern hair growth or acne, those sorts of things. Um, then there is a really good chance that your PCOS is actually that post pill, that rebound effect of having been on a, um, a pharmaceutical, which essentially um, hijacks your own hormone production. And so you can get this temporary drive, this temporary increase in androgens after coming off the pill. Right. Um, yeah. 
So that one is something that I've also seen in clinic, you know, girls who've, who've come off the pill, it's been perhaps three or six months since they've come off the pill, their period hasn't come back or it's come back once or twice, the doctors said, right, PCOS, that's what it is. And again, this makes treatment really difficult because if it's not an insulin resistant PCOS, then the dietary intervention is very different to the insulin resistant PCOS. Mm, of course. If you didn't have a normal period before you went on the pill, we then come down to what could be the, the third class or the third driver of PCOS, which would be an inflammatory based PCOS. Now, most cases of PCOS would have some sort of inflammation involved or chronic inflammation involved. But in this case, it's chronic inflammation, which is driving the ovaries to make too much testosterone. So I guess the question you have to ask yourself or the conversation you're having with your, with your physician is, you know, do you have unexplained fatigue? Do you have consistent headaches do you have ibs do you have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO is there joint pain is there sort of chronic skin condition all of these are signs of some sort of chronic inflammatory response mm -hmm. going on underneath the surface and so you know if you don't have the elevated insulin if you didn't have a normal period before you went on the pill and you've come off the pill then you would go next to looking at well is there some sort of chronic underlying inflammation which could also be um, driving the PCOS wow. and yeah so in this case this is when we've got to dig deeper and we've actually got to look at what is causing the chronic inflammation and this is where your testing i refer to your testing budget needs to be directed because you've got to start to look at okay well um what are the possible causes of this inflammation and then you've got to look at symptom picture and try to pick that individual apart to determine what do we need to test and where do we need to look more deeply mm, super super interesting yeah, yeah. And then we've got the, the fourth driver of PCOS, which is um, what would be the least common of PCOS. And that's looking at adrenally driven PCOS. Um, so this is essentially um, where you would still see signs of elevated androgens or like male, uh, male hormones. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're looking at the, the hormone profiling and testing, um, these individuals with adrenal PCOS wouldn't have elevated testosterone, they would simply have elevated DHEAS. So this is how you differentiate between that insulin resistant or post pill PCOS. Um, it's an individual who has elevated DHEAS, but no other elevated androgens. Okay, what, what yeah. is DHEAS? I can't even, uh, it's an acronym that don't even ask me to say. <laughs> Um, it's, it's a hormone that's produced by the adrenal glands, um, and it is androgen. So it's one of the, the male hormones, um, and in, increased production of DHEAS will take place, um, when there's stress present, you know, when the adrenal glands are going into overdrive because they're responding to stress within their environment, within the individual's environment. And so then again, treatment would be very different for that one also. Well, yes, exactly. Because if we look at like a traditional treatment for an insulin resistant PCOS, um, you know, the dietary intervention is, is to 
look at moderating carbohydrate intake so that we can then normalize blood sugar levels and reduce the, the insulin response. If there's um, excess weight associated with that insulin resistance, then obviously we would also want to be inducing weight loss. So there may be a form of calorie restriction there and I'm not talking you know significant calorie restriction but maybe some uh, and so yeah if you're looking at somebody with adrenally driven PCOS you'd want to remove any form of stress which means there would be no sort of significant carbohydrate con um, reduction unless of course the individual was sort of eating 500 grams of processed carbs per day um, uh, and yeah you certainly wouldn't be looking at, at significant calorie restriction either because again both both potentially creating some stress and putting some um, some extra pressure on the adrenal glands. Mm, of course. Yeah, so very different. Looking at all four types, you mentioned that number one is insulin resistance and that affects over 70% of females. Is that right? Yeah, around about 70% we would put in that insulin resistant category. Mm -hmm. Or we would find would fall in that insulin resistant category. And if you're lucky mm. enough to have a doctor who has gone ahead and actually done the insulin testing and you know which type you are, is that when they would normally come to someone like you who is a dietitian who would help them get on track with their, their eating? Yeah, absolutely. So um, let, yeah, let's say the doctor has done due diligence and they've done um, a review of fasting insulin, fasting blood glucose, as well as um, testing for androgens. So I didn't even mention that before, but in general, you know, when looking at a diagnosis of PCOS, um, you'd, you'd want to at least do some blood screening for elevated androgens. So looking at testosterone, looking at DHEAS. And so hopefully the first port of call from the doctor would be to refer for bloods, looking at insulin, fasting blood glucose, HbA1c and testosterone and DHEAS. Mm -hmm. um, if the doctors identify that insulin resistant style PCOS, then, you know, there may be a conversation around diet. Hopefully there would be um, because <laughs> as, as we know and have discussed, there's, there's a, lot of, um, a lot of beneficial things that can come from manipulating the diet to, to treat and manage insulin-resistant PCOS. But um, unfortunately for some physicians, the first port of call is to look at pharmaceutical intervention. Um, which might be a discussion around the use of metformin, um, which is a medication that's used to manage um, uh, type 2 diabetes. Metformin can actually work really well, but I just, I just don't agree with the use of metformin as a first port of call. There's so much else that can be done, um, both diet, lifestyle and nutritional supplementation um, to help do the exact same thing that metformin might do. Um, the other thing that the doctor might talk about is actually going back on the contraceptive pill. So, uh, you know, hello, individual with PCOS, irregular menstrual cycles and excess androgens. We can just pop you on the contraceptive pill, which will normalize your hormone levels and get your period back. Uh, and that's probably the worst outcome that can come from all of this. Um, yeah, especially for the individuals who don't have the insulin resistant type um, PCOS, but they've actually got that post pill PCOS. You can imagine you've you've been on the pill, you've come off the pill, you haven't got your period back. Then there actually can be that suggestion to mm. let's go back on the pill. 
Yeah. Exactly. And you know what's a little bit traumatizing is that when you're in that post pill stage, your skin can come up with so much acne. You can get a lot of like mm. symptoms, all of this like PCOS, like really alarming stuff happened to your body. And then the doctor says, well, let's just put you back on it and let's regulate yeah. everything. But, but what happens when I want to come off it again, doc, and I, I want to have a baby? What then? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And like, you know, for, for physicians, they just, they just want to get a solution. Like, you know, they've got their clients sitting in front of them. They're probably well aware that the quickest road to resolving the skin, getting the period back, is to put the, is to put the patient back on their OCP. And so like tick, tick, job done, you know, and they've only got 10 minutes because unfortunately our, our model of health suggests that a doctor can get the job done in 10 minutes with their, with their patient. And so they're just doing the best they can in that 10 minutes they've got. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, like you said, it, it's not, it's not resolving the problem. It's really just prolonging the inevitable, which is, yeah, okay, I, I want to get pregnant in five, six, 10 years time. How do I do that doc? Um, and I, you know, I always look at your menstrual cycle as being like your monthly report card. So if you're 22, 23, you're not even thinking about getting pregnant, um, then at least look at your menstrual cycle as that report card of, of your health that month. Because if there's something out of whack, um, then quite often it can manifest in your period and whether or not it comes on time or whether or not it's a really uncomfortable period. And so, yeah, like girls, let's start paying attention to our periods and let's know, know about how it works. Um, you know, what, what, is, what is the conversation around the period at high school? It's like, okay, we get our period. Um, this is how you put in a tampon. This is, this is what a pad looks like. There's no discussion around when your period comes, that's day one of your cycle and your cycle should hopefully last about 28 days. If not, that's, that's not entirely something to be concerned about. Halfway through the cycle is when you will ovulate. You know, those four days leading into ovulation and those one to two days after is when you're most fertile that's not the conversation. Like, I don't know what sort of school you went to, but at school for me, it was just like, don't have unprotected sex because you'll get pregnant. <laughs> it's not, yeah. You'll only, it's not, you'll only get pregnant on five or six days of your cycle. The rest of the days of the cycle, you're pretty much infertile. I didn't even know this until I got flow the period tracking app mm. i had no idea that day one of my cycle was when my period began i didn't know that there was a special time for ovulation and that was around the time that, that was gonna you know be more fertile i had no idea ellie yeah yep and look i didn't until probably my later 20s when i was dealing with getting my period back online after having you know come off the pill um and figuring out what on earth was going on um, so yeah, I didn't know that either. But it is a conversation that I have to have in clinic because if if I ask a if I ask a client to to go and do hormone profiling on day twenty one of their cycle, quite often I have to be very categoric about that. You know, day twenty one of your cycle, I'd like your hormone profiling to be done, and let's make sure we're both on the same page here. Day one of your cycle is when you have the first day of your bleed, yeah. um, and it's it it's not our fault. It's just not, it's not something we're taught about when we're younger. It's like, here's a tampon and don't have unprotected sex. That's, That's it. That's all you need, ladies. That's it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> and men don't worry maybe learn how to put a condom on you know oh yeah minimal that like minimum please let's <laughs> wear a condom I have a lot of messages occasionally from women who have come off the pill. They've been told that they have PCOS. And like you said before, their doctor has just said, go back on the pill. That's, you know, their their option and that's what they want to do. But they don't want to do that. What would you suggest to those women that want to stay off it and go down the natural course? Natural course. Um. Well, I guess the first thing is to look at what form of contraception they're going to put into place um, because obviously there needs to be some sort of contraception to avoid unwanted pregnancy. Um, So this is where becoming really conscious of your reproductive cycle is really important because you could go down the path of looking at the fertility awareness method um, and there are apps. There are apps that help with the fertility awareness methods. One of those apps that I really like is called Natural Cycles. Um, And Natural Cycles essentially teaches you when your period is due, when you are ovulating, and therefore when you are most fertile and nor infertile. So it can be used as something to support fertility and conception, or it can be used as something to help you avoid conception. Um, And they do that through the combination of hormone testing midway through the month to determine when ovulation is and also through temperature checking first thing in the morning again so you can, you, the app can become really sensitive to when you tend to ovulate you know whether it's day 14 of your cycle or day 13 uh, of your cycle when you ovulate so that's natural cycles and then there is also a device called daisy um, which does all of that for you within the device Um, again helping you with using that fertility awareness method which quite simply is just helping you as an individual to know when you're most fertile when you're most um, most likely to conceive and therefore when you're most likely to need a barrier method to avoid like unwanted conception Um, that's fertility awareness method there could be another non-hormonal based method which is the copper iud Um, For some women, the copper IUD is an absolute godsend. For others, it isn't, but definitely do your research and have a look into it. Um, There's just pure use of barrier methods. So um, condoms. um, Why have I completely lost the the name of the device? Um, What is it that females use for barrier method? I've just completely had a mental blank. Oh, I actually don't know. Diaphragm, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, diaphragm is something that can be used. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, there there are other hormonal-based methods, but they're sort of your um, sort of go-tos in, tort- in terms of non-hormonal-based um, uh, contraceptive measures. Um, so that's the first step in somebody who's sort of recovering from post-pill PCOS. Um, I guess the other, the next thing to do is just give it some time. Okay. So if it's only been three months since coming off the pill, don't fret, don't be alarmed. Just give your body time to, to start getting hormone production back online. Um, you know, up to six months, you then might start doing some further exploration. Uh, and that's when, yeah, you might go and see a, um, a holistic health professional, you know, like a tr- nutritionist like myself or, or a naturopath um, to have a look at whether there's any nutritional deficiencies or um, inadequacies that are potentially leading your body not to 
leading the hormone production not to come back online and they can be addressed. Yeah. Mm. Um, and this also is where something like that hypothalamic amenorrhea also needs to be considered. Um, I don't know what it is, mate. Sorry. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Definitely. Yeah. I don't know what it is, whether it's sort of the demographic of girls that are sort of coming off the, the pill. I'm, I'm not sure, but hypothalamic amenorrhea, as I alluded to before is um, often misdiagnosed as PCOS but hypothalamic amenorrhea is essentially when there is a breakdown in the communication between the hypothalamic, adrenal and ovarian access. So essentially um, the hypothalamus, which is sort of like the hormone control center of the body um, for a myriad of reasons, um, senses that it's not a time for this body to conceive. It's not a time, it's not a safe time for this body to procreate um, and therefore hormone production gets switched off or the communication between the hypothalamus and the hypothalamus and the ovaries gets switched off um, and that can mean that the menstrual cycle is incredibly irregular um, or it's not present at all. And... I tend to find that it's young females that fall more in this hypothalamic amenorrhea um, category um, because I guess some of the biggest risk factors for HA is under eating. Mm. So um, a total restriction in calories and or significant redu reduction in carbohydrate or stress, um, some sort of psychological or potential chemical stress or nutritional stress as well. And so if you've got like a young 20s girl who's come off the pill but still in a really, I guess, um, fragile stage of their life where they're figuring out who they are, they've got body issue, body image challenges, they come off the pill, period doesn't come back, the doctor says they've got PCOS, but then actually it's far from PCOS, it's this either post-pill recovery or it's hypothalamic amenorrhea. Mm. Um, you know, the treatment for hypothalamic amenorrhea is to increase calorie intake, yeah. increase carbohydrate intake. And you can see how if you went down a traditional path of treating insulin-resistant PCOS, then you'd really be adding fuel to the fire if that person actually had hypothalamic amenorrhea mm. and a cessation of menstrual cycle because of under-eating. Um, really interesting, but I was just having a little read and, and jotting down a few things prior to this conversation. But, um, you know, you may have heard before that when your body, your, your body senses that it's not a time to procreate, then it shuts down hormone production. We've sort of heard that. Um, but we are the only mammal in the world that can't put pregnancy on pause. So other mammals, if there is a period of famine, starvation, you know, adequate nutrition can't be met to support conception or this growing fetus, then pregnancy gets popped on pause. But humans can't do that. So our hypothalamus, which again is that control center of, of, of the hormone system, endocrine system, um, the hypothalamus is sensitive to the production of insulin. So insulin is that hormone that's produced in response to carbohydrate or um, blood glucose rise and if the hypothalamus senses that there's a lack of insulin insulin production 
i.e. because the person's starving themselves or because they're not eating carbohydrates, then the hypothalamus, hypothalamus will send a message to the ovaries to say, like, let's not, cre let's not create a baby or let's not even support a hormonal environment that would allow conception because there's potentially starvation happen happening here, which means we won't be able to support the production of a fetus if we were to conceive. So just like super intelligent, these internal uh, message systems that we've got within the body to help protect, protect, you know, fundamentally what we do as females, which is procreate. Yeah, it's amazing. It just, it shows you how intelligent the body truly is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, and again, coming back to why our period is like our monthly report card yeah. um, because if there are nutritional deficiencies or inadequacies if there is a lot of stress um, at various points of the cycle then yeah it can prolong ovulation prolong the period um, or change you know change the, the quality of that period the heaviness of the bleeding that sort of thing yeah Oh, and it's it's actually very fitting that you say this because before we came on this conversation, I was giving you a little information into my period this time and how it's been quite painful and it's been, it was a longer, it was quite late as well. Um, and there's been a lot of stress in my life lately and it just shows that the body has extended it and it's given me a little bit of a whipping, you know, because of all of it. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, and usually, like, usually I would say look at a couple of periods in a row to determine any trends and to determine if it's something that needs to be jumped onto or if you just need to take better care of yourself, you know, next month. Yeah. Um, we can certainly have a look at some of the things that, like, may support you or people in that position. But firstly, I just want to come back to <laughs> the... Um, the, the difference between PCOS and hypothalamic amenorrhea and the questions that you as an individual might be asking your doctor. Um, because, you know, the doctor, if, if you present saying that I've got an irregular menstrual cycle and I've got acne, um, the doctor might then send you off for ultrasound. So ultrasound to determine if there is um, polycystic ovaries or an excess number of follicles or eggs there present on the ovaries. Now, there, there is some, some practitioners who support this notion that really doing an ultrasound on a female who hasn't, hasn't been menstruating for more than 10 years is really not worth it because their reproductive system is not mature enough to have like normalised follicles there on the ovaries. So they could just have increased follicles on the ovaries simply because of their age and where they're at in the maturation process. Oh. Um, so if you're sort of not quite 10 years from when you first started having your period, you might want to have the ultrasound done, but you'd really want to dig, dig more deeply to have a look at what are the other sort of characteristics of PCOS and or um, hypothalamic amenorrhea. Mm. Um, the test that I often get my, my clients to do if they don't fit the bill of a um, a more classic case of PCOS, like those four types that I just mentioned earlier, um, is to have a look at their luteinizing hormone to follicle stimulating hormone ratio. So that's LH or FSH for short. Now, ideally, we want to get this test done on day two, maybe three of the menstrual cycle. Again, being really clear as to what day, day one is. 
but if we test this LH or FSH on day two or three of the menstrual cycle, we can have a look at the ratio. Um, and if it's a low ratio, low LH to FSH ratio, um, then we can determine that it's, it's most likely a case of hypothalamic amenorrhea as opposed to PCOS. So that's sort of like the draw card I pull out if it's not obvious as to what this person has got. But again, I want to be really clear on it. And, and when I say I, we, you, the listener, wants to be really clear on it because of the, the then treatment that, that comes into play. Right. Mm. So LH to FSH ratio done on days two or three of the cycle. The other profiling that can be done um, is, is, is hormonal profiling. So what I do often in clinic is salivary hormonal profiling. Um, so I guess the standard measure of hormones would be through the blood and that's what a, a physician might order. Um, you know, things like estrogen and testosterone, follicle stimulating hormone, luteinizing hormone, progesterone to be done through the blood. Uh, I typically look at those hormones through saliva just because the saliva helps to give us an indication of the free and available hormones. So it's almost like a, a truer measure of what's actually going on with, um, with hormone production and, and availability. So through salivary hormonal profiling, I'm just a little more confident in the results that we get around estrogen, progesterone, as well as those androgens. So testosterone, DHEAS. We can also, in this hormonal profile, have a look at cortisol production. Mm -hmm. So depending on the test that you order, we can order a cortisol profile at the same time. And cortisol profile, ideally, you'd be looking at a four-point profile. So um, a saliva sample in the morning, at noon, in the afternoon, and in the evening. Because with that, we can see whether cortisol production is following a normal, uh, normal profile, because cortisol is not is not sort of, um, you haven't got like this steady stream of cortisol being produced over the course of the day. You've got this nice peak, nice natural peak in cortisol at the start of the day. And then it sort of tends to, tends to wean off from around about midday and then plateau towards the end of the day into the evening. And it makes sense, right? Like cortisol helps us to get up and go. So we have this peak in the morning and then it flattens out at the end of the day to help us then calm down and get ourselves to bed. Um, but this cortisol profiling is a really great thing to do when it comes to sort of understanding the, the female menstrual cycle and dysregularities, abnormalities, because if there is dysregulated cortisol production, then we can tell if potentially this is a driver. And again, coming back down to that adrenal PCOS, we can see whether this dysregulated cortisol production is a driver for their PCOS um, and their symptoms. So just really, that, that test is not something that's done through, um, through Medicare, so you do have to pay out of pocket. But uh, again, coming back to this scenario of the girl who's come off the pill and maybe six months later, the period hasn't started coming back, then this, this hormone profile would be something that I'd highly consider doing. Mm. The test is about $220. So um, it's, it's, not sort of, um, it's, it's not sort of an absurd amount of money. Certainly worth it if you want to see what's going on. 
Mm, definitely. Mm. And it can be really disconcerting. It can be really hard to know that your body isn't functioning in the way that you want it to be. So I think getting the answers is a really good idea. Yeah, definitely. And some of the other things that I considered looking at is not just that hormonal profiling, but then potentially understanding nutrient status. And this is something that you can get done through the doctor. You've got to make sure you go in armed and with some advice on what feedback on what's going on with you and knowledge of what tests you want to ask for. Um, but specifically looking at things like zinc levels, vitamin D levels, also asking for iron studies. Um, they're probably some of my top questions that I'd be asking um, when, you know, again, six months down the track, your period hasn't come back after coming off the pill or after just not having a period. Um, they are sort of top three on the list that you might ask for yeah. to see if there is any inadequacies there that need to be addressed, either through the diet um, or through nutritional supplementation to help bridge the gap, gap a little more quickly. Yeah. Look, there is there is so much involved in a PCOS diagnosis and I, I hope that this podcast today will help clear it up for people a little bit. But yeah, I know that the positioning that it feels like to be a little bit daunted and to try and do all the things to, you know, all the things on the websites and the blogs and trying to manage PCOS. But I personally, it was not until I went to a professional and asked for more details, did I really start getting results. So that's why I think it's so important getting testing done and seeing a professional is just like saving time and also saves you money. Yeah, exactly. And can you see how understanding what one of those four categories of PCS you fall into would then really help to streamline the process and get your results more quickly? Absolutely, because then it would know whether or not I do need to target my diet or whether or not I need to manage my stress better. It's, it's completely different. Or whether time is just the factor with the post-pill option. I think the more people go out and figure out what type four they are, what driver it is, the better. Yeah, yeah, precisely. And I hope in this... and hope in this conversation that it hasn't confused people but maybe it's one of those one of these conversations that you go back and listen to again and you start taking some notes um so you sort of don't go around and around in your head in circles as to what you might have but actually you can sort of create your list of questions you know for your doctor like okay what did you see when you looked at my blood sugar control? What did you see when you looked at my um, testosterone levels? Um, were those things normal? Do you think, you know, do you think there could be anything else that's causing it? Um, there are all the sorts of questions that could really help out in, in better understanding what's the driver, what's going on under the surface. Because as we said right at the beginning, there is nothing worse. Or I can't imagine anything worse than, you know, being somebody who's torn between the advice of your doctor who you're pretty sure has, you know, done 15 years of university, um, you know, versus the advice of your nutritionist, naturopath, dietitian, who is also very well educated, but just, I think generally we're predisposed to, um, to look at that doctor and presume that they've, they've got the answer. I agree with you. We do assume that they have all the answers and that they know all, but when you think about it, like they're not, women's health specialists they are a general practitioner and we can't expect them to have that knowledge so mm, that's just my personal opinion though yeah 
Yeah. And, and again, um, if they've only got 10 minutes to, to use in that consultation with you, then they might not troubleshoot the different options that you have or what testing to get done next. They just want to try most likely get you the quickest result possible. Um, and that's what I do in my consults with my clients is I talk them through their options. Okay. We could go down the shorter route. We could, we could go the really clear route and do some testing to see precisely what's going on. Or we could do the sort of suck it and see option, which is to put you on this protocol. And if it doesn't work in a couple of months, then we move on to the next one. Um, but that's usually only because I'm aware that people have different timelines and different budgets. Like my personal preference would always be to test until we get to the root cause and then treat that, treat that root cause. And I guess that's, um, I guess what is quite con what, what's considered to be more of a holistic or naturopathic perspective on things is like look root cause mm -hmm. um, because if you can create sort of normalcy, harmony, balance, um, then the body should start to recover and, and heal itself. I agree. It's also about valuing your body for what it should be able to naturally do. And through lifestyle and, you know, things that happen in our day-to-day -day life, that innate intelligence can be thrown off and it can be interrupted and cause us things like PCOS. But like you were saying, underlying cause can really help us to discover how we can get that, like, intelligence back intact. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And if it is, we, we didn't talk about this a lot, but if it is one of those um, inflammatory driven cases of PCS, then of course there's, there's something else that needs to be addressed. Um, and so if your PCOS is inflammatory driven, but you're put on potentially a more traditional style of treatment like metformin or the contraceptive pill, well, there's something else, like another condition that needs to be looked at. Um, and so you're missing out on, um, you know, taking care of that IBS or taking care of that potential parasite that's living under the surface or bacterial overgrowth or imbalance that's there, you know. Um, it's sort of the similar bug to bear that I have with things like blood pressure medication or statin medication um, because it's... it's it's not understanding that high blood pressure or high cholesterol is usually a symptom of something broader going on in the body. Mm. And by using medication to take care of those things, you're still not addressing the driver. And therefore you run the risk of some other problem creeping up one or two, two or months or years later, and then potentially some other medication having to be used to take care of that problem. But it all comes back to the one common driver. So if we get to that common driver, we don't run the risk of, you know, having to intervene in another two months, two years, two no. decades time. To be taking 10 different pills each day for each little thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I've, I've had the clients who are on medications because they're dealing with the side effects of the medications. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, let's look at really what, why we, why we start the medication in the first place. Let's not, let's not start a new medication because of the side effects of the original medication. No. Yeah. Let's and try and get you off the medication if we can. Yeah. Yeah, precisely. And it's, it, it might not always be straight away. You know, if I start working with somebody new for the first time uh, and they are on medication, it's never in conversation number one. All right, let's rip that away because you don't need it. Not at all. It's more like, have you looked at a timeline? Have you and your doctor discussed a timeline for that medication? If not, why don't you ask them about timelines next time you speak? 
Um, and if you want to, if you if you want to concurrently work on setting the right foundation, so when and if you do come off the medication, you're in the best place possible. Great, let's do that. I you agree. know, I agree. Mm. I think we've given mm. the listeners a lot to think about today and stuff that they would never have even thought of because really, this isn't common knowledge. It's not knowledge that your doctor really gives you. A lot of the time, they don't explain why they're giving you something. Your condition is given to you within that 10 minute time frame, and then you're sort of just left standing outside the doctor's office going, well, what next? And I think mm. this conversation hopes, hopefully is going to point our listeners into some directions of guidance today. So Ellie, thanks for joining me again. Uh, not at all. Thank you so much for having me. It's great <laughs> to get this info out there for people. It is. And where can the listeners find you if they want to work with you specifically and also on social media? Yeah, for sure. So um, they can find uh, details about me and my practice and my background on my website, which is nutritionelly.com or nutritionally. Um, and then they can find me on Instagram, just at nutritionally. So that's my handle. Um, and if, yeah, if you're thinking about working with me, then either inquire via my website or you can book in for a comp complimentary 15 minute consultation just to, I guess, sort of hash out your primary goals with me and then we can figure out if I'm the right person for you and or what are the next steps for us working together. Awesome. And I think it's a great idea. And like we've said, it's important to invest in our health and to figure out what the underlying cause is. So here's hoping that they, they put that investment into themselves today. Yeah, definitely. Thanks so much, Steph. So good talking. You too, Ellie. Good to chat to you. I cannot tell you how good it was having Ellie back on the podcast this week. This episode has really cleared things up for me and I hope it's cleared things up for you too. I definitely know that I had aha moments while we were recording this. I had so many moments where I realized that in my own polycystic ovarian syndrome diagnosis, I needed to have not listened to my gynecologist and gone back on the pill at first like I did. I needed more answers. It would have been more beneficial to push and to figure out what type of driver I have when it comes to my PCOS because then I would have known how to treat it. See, I went onto the internet, I scoured every corner, I wrote down every little tiny treatment, every little natural way of how to reverse my PCOS symptoms. And I gotta say, I probably did a few things that were really unnecessary because I was doing all of the things rather than doing the things that were specific for my type of PCOS. And maybe if I had known, then I wouldn't have had to go to crazy lengths that I did. The results that I've had have been amazing, but I probably could have saved so much time and so much money if I had known what my number one driver is. I want to say a big thank you to Ellie for joining me again on the podcast. It is always so much fun to have her here. She is such a wealth of knowledge and it's so special to be able to share my time with her. I'm very grateful to all of you for sharing your time with both of us. That's one of my favorite things. 
If you have any thoughts or feedback, please don't hesitate to contact me or Ellie via our Instagram accounts. We love to hear from you. If you do need any more polycystic ovarian syndrome support, I do recommend following at the PCOS Bible on Instagram for lots of information, infographics, and just a space to feel as though you are a part of a community. And if you do want that in-person help, I really do recommend going to see Ellie in clinic and getting the right answers for you. Thank you all, and I will see you in my next episode.